Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And we're going to put caution in the shotgun seat as we dive into part 14 of Twin Peaks. Jeff, I was texting you about this episode while I was watching it. You're currently on vacation up in the great Pacific Northwest. If you are prone to wanting moments in David Lynch things that seem to take place outside of the normal flow of time or outside of the normal flow of reality. This was an episode that had all that and more. Lots of uh, black and white monochromatic moments that seem to take place in a far-flung corner of this universe or in dreams or in Paris. What did you think of part 14, (laughs) Jeff? Well, I thought that it got off to a little rocky start, but then the Seattle Seahawks really asserted themselves and managed to put a lot of points on the San Diego Chargers. And oh, wait a minute. Oh, we're talking about Twin Peaks. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, 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 I am in Seattle recording this podcast today. I really did want to venture up into Twin Peaks land and maybe record this live, um, perhaps sitting on a log right next to Jack Rabbit's palace. But no, I'm a. Uh, I'm visiting family in Seattle, and last night, while Darren was watching Twin Peaks with the rest of you in real time, I was watching the Seattle Seahawks preseason game with my family, (laughs) which was a lovely time, a lovely time, (laughs) except that my phone kept on blowing up just every minute with like exclamation marks from Darren something is happening what is what is going on and it was all i could do to kind of like you know get home and watch twin peaks and (laughs) and and you did not mislead me darren franich when i got home and watched last night's episode wow like i'm really still not like of all the episodes we've seen so far this season even the one in which we went back in time and detonated an A-bomb and went on this weird space odyssey into the heart of American evil. Now, this one, more than maybe any hour so far this year, just leaves me a little baffled and really uneasy. You know, Lynch as Gordon Cole has this line in last night's episode, like I had a powerful, uneasy feeling. And that's what the effect of this whole episode was on me watching it. I really don't know what to trust about the reality of the show anymore. Is it a dream? Is it a collective dream? Are we in one person's dream? Are we having like a mix of reality that is being distorted by psychic events and causing some misrepresentation and, and distorted representation? I'm I'm a little baffled. I like. I really do wonder if we are headed toward the Mulholland Drive twist ending. You know. Yeah. I mean, like. Um. So I loved the episode, but I acknowledge that that is because of a very unique aspect of my Lynch fandom. Jeff, you've kind of said all along that one interesting thing about this season of Twin Peaks is how it seems to kind of echo back through Lynch's career, and there are even individual. Uh, 
episodes or sequences that seem to really recall very specifically films he's worked on, projects he's worked on. I felt like this episode was just like an announcement, like we are deep into the Inland Empire rabbits phase of David Lynch's career. Um, Not necessarily a phase that is his most beloved, um, but certainly if you're prone to enjoying like purposefully obtuse dreamlike storytelling it could be quite interesting i do think jeff that maybe one reason why this is a strange episode even within the context of dream sequence type episodes is that didn't you think this was almost like david lynch doing three very different versions of like a recap clip show in a way like literally like like on two different occasions in this episode there was a character in a kind of black and white dream space looking at footage we have seen previously on Twin Peaks and then there was another moment of one character sort of describing a similar event to another character and so there was this weird sense of like you know Sometimes dreams are used in a narrative to kind of further a story. You know, what one thinks a lot about the use of dreams on The Sopranos, where a lot of times it was just kind of like, well, we know we need this to happen, but we don't want it to happen in like a normal way. Can we have Tony dream about a talking fish that sounds like his friend he has to kill? You know, like like there's that kind of dream sequence, which at least has a clear forward momentum. And this one, to your point, it seemed to be just kind of reaching back, reaching outward, you know, getting you to sort of think about things you've maybe already seen in a different way. Um, Or, you know, if you're like Andy and you're kind of coming in late and you're still confused, just having you sort of watch a lot of things all at once. And apparently he understood it. So hopefully if we kind of talk it out, we can understand it too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it says something about the budget of the show that, you know, like that they spend all of their money on these sort of like vortex special effects and faces coming off of Sarah Palmer. Like, we have no cash for the rest of the episode, so let's just do, like, you know, flashbacks to Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's get started there, Jeff. This was a moment that you could argue has been teased all season, um, but also, of course, something we have seen before. We begin with Gordon Cole in Buckhorn, South Dakota, still at the Hotel Mayfair, the most important hotel in the Dakotas. Um, He calls up Twin Peaks, I thought there was a really wonderful and genuinely kind of emotional moment when he realizes it's it's Lucy on the phone. And, you know, you kind of just have David Lynch himself in his very peculiar shouting drawl kind of saying, ah, you've been there all through the years, Lucy. I thought that was a weirdly sort of oddly moving moment, immediately followed by Lucy saying, no, no, I've I've gone home. And Andy and I, one year we went to Bora Bora, which, which led to just a long pause of Gordon Cole like listening and maybe not hearing anything she was saying on the phone he was returning Sheriff Truman's call another fun little bit of business Gordon of course thought he'd be talking to Harry Truman it is instead Frank Truman Frank gave him sort of the full download of information regarding the discovery of Laura Palmer's diary which we may recall that Gordon somewhat perplexingly 
had seen a vision of Laura Palmer outside of his room. You wonder if this was some echo backwards from this moment, learning about the Laura Palmer case kind of being reopened in Twin Peaks. I'm realizing just as we're talking about this, Jeff, that this moment of Buckhorn connecting to Twin Peaks could run a train over whatever notion of the different timelines that I had about the show, but maybe we'll leave that alone for right now. Um, how did you kind of feel about this sort of first telephone meeting between Sheriff Truman, between the new Sheriff Truman and uh, Gordon Cole? You know, what was interesting for me was, you know, you mentioned over the past several weeks on, on the podcast and throughout, I think, Twin Peaks fandom wrestling with this story, trying to figure it out. We have been noting um, scenes that are maybe airing out of order or not in continuity. You know, with this scene, I did wonder if this moment was taking place, you know, sometime several days ago or not necessarily in the as present as we've seen uh, other stories. Like the fact that Frank doesn't mention anything about the little tube they find in Major Briggs' chair, for example, that as part of their investigation leads me to believe that this conversation that took place between Frank and Gordon took place before they found that little tube and with the message to go find Jack Rabbit's palace. Um, So, I did wonder about that, but strangely enough, maybe as a result of a lot of the events of this episode, I found myself also divesting a little bit in terms of that whole question. Like, when are things taking place? Because I kind of feel that after this episode, the presentation of reality is so in question that it kind of almost makes irrelevant issues of like, when are things taking place and maybe changes them in in some regard, you know, to the point where it's not that I'm not interested, I would say, I just now no longer have a theory about this. And I'm just now kind of sitting back and instead of thinking like I'm on top of things, now I feel like I'm not on top of things. So I'm now kind of in the mode of just sitting back and just letting the show reveal things to me. But what was really striking about this sequence in particular is this is an episode that really hit hard ideas and themes of doubling and doppelgangers and two of everything, if not more of two of everything. And the whole conversation that took place, the whole emphasis on to Cooper's that's now going to lead into this conversation after the scene after Frank and uh, Gordon in which Agent Tammy and Agent Albert are are going to have a conversation about the origins of the Blue Rose task force. I just kind of felt like there was this emphasis on, you know, doubling and then soon emphasis on dreams. So that's what struck me right away from that conversation is doubled reality, you know, that that's part of the hero's journey, mythic storytelling, blah, 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 etc. But also a very sort of very Jungian dream logic thing. So once again, we have an episode that's really kind of hitting hard these motifs that really emphasize dream logic and dream reality in the storytelling. Yeah, and uh, you know, you were sort of mentioning that we, we deepen our understanding of the early origins of the Blue Rose Task Force. I like how Albert is just is, is kind of just like gradually filling in Tammy on this. You know, you know, kind of kind of as they go. It's it's sort of a a multi day tutorial. Case number one. 
The year was 1975. Two young field agents investigate a murder in Olympia, Washington. Again, the Pacific Northwest is truly the arena uh, in which all of these incredible cosmic events take place. Just just south of Canada, the drugged-out center of all criminal evil in the world. Uh, only in Twin Peaks, not, not in real life. Much love to Canada. Um, a suspect named Lois Duffy was suspected of the murder. Uh, the two young field agents heard a gunshot outside of her room, ran inside. There in one corner was Lois Duffy, Dying from a bullet wound, she said, I'm like the Blue Rose, smiled, died, disappeared before their eyes. In the other corner, holding the murder weapon, also Lois Duffy. And as Albert told us in another perfect line reading by the late, great Miguel Ferrer, by the way, Lois Duffy did not have a twin sister. (laughs) (laughs) And, And this was all, you know... Albert almost kind of constructed this as a test, and Tammy kind of took a, you know, Nicolas Cage in National Treasure gigantic leap of induction, like, Blue Rose, Blue Rose does not occur in nature. The dying woman was not natural. She wasn't natural. She was conjured. She's a tulpa. And as I mentioned in um, my recap last night, a tulpa, a tulpa, Jeff, is a concept that I believe kind of hails from Tibet, this idea of manifesting an actual being using only your thoughts. There's a little whiff of spirituality here. I did a little bit more research, and there seems to be some notion of like the possibility of collective thoughts conjuring this being into place. I wasn't quite sure how deep to dive into this, but I'd love to know you know, we hear that the two young agents who witnessed all this, of course, the the sad passing of both Lois Duffy's as the one who held the murder weapon later killed herself. Those two young agents were Philip Jeffries and Gordon Cole. It's interesting, these little teasing hints we get about the origins of the Blue Rose, I'm, I'm always a little intrigued by them. We've kind of talked about how there's this interesting bit of retconning happening here where these previously not necessarily linked together FBI agents were now discovering that they were part of a Black Lodge investigation squad going back decades, which is interesting. But what were your kind of thoughts about this secret history of the task force that we that we kind of got from, from Albert? Well, a couple things. Olympia, I too was struck by like the Pacific Northwest being like, you know, the arena, the theater of this spiritual world war that is going on, that is emanating uh, from the Black Lodge and intersecting with our world. I always suspected when I was growing up in the Pacific Northwest, Darren, that we were in the center of the whole world, that it was really (laughs) all about us and maybe even all about me. Um, and so, like, it just makes sense. Twin Peaks really affirming my worldview. Olympia is the capital of uh, the state of Washington at the year 1975. If you like to look at Twin Peaks, as, as I do, is sort of like this very weird allegory about the spiritual condition of the United States and of America in general. And Lynch and Mark Frost sort of reflecting on that through the mythology and grammar of Twin Peaks. 
and if, if Twin Peaks is sort of a microcosm of America, this idea that the first crime, the first supernatural break, the first psychotic break in reality that they are investigating in the context of, of their Blue Rose investigations is occurring in, in this sort of capital city of Washington this, you know, 1975, the mid-70s, the heart of the American malaise after Watergate, after Vietnam, where America's experiencing this huge demoralization and growing cynicism, that very sort of pop myth, the idea that the 60s was sort of the fall of America and, and an ugly spiritual condition kind of flowed out of it. I was kind of wondering if some kind of metaphor was at play here, the idea of like 1975 in the heart of Twin Peaks, USA, in the capital city. Those are some things I was thinking about. Not that, that you know, America wasn't a fallen place before 1975 at all, but that's just some of the things that I was on my mind. Again, this story about Lois Duffy, you know, the whole mystery of the doubles of her that exist, her and her doppelganger. And yeah, the whole thing of Tulpa. I want to say that I've encountered this word one other time before. I think that there was a, a whole episode of the X-Files revival that was organized around this idea. I, I believe that the whole episode involving the garbage man, the, the, the serial killer garbage man that was executing street justice on behalf of the marginalized of Philadelphia, I believed all dealt with the idea of tulpas and thought forms. But again, like I did that research too. The quick Wikipedia search, what is a tulpa? And I was just kind of struck by the idea that it is this literal manifestation of a thought and maybe even the manifestation of group consciousness, of multiple people having the same thought and, and sort of an expression of their psychic energy. And again, that I think kind of feeds into current theories about the reality of what's happening. Like, is is all of this a group dream or or if it's not a dream, like is there some kind of psychic event that is occurring through all of the linked minds of the Twin Peaks community that might be sort of a like have as their organizing principle either Agent Cooper or Laura Palmer like willing things into existence and creating some kind of drama. Those were the things that I immediately thought about with with all of that. The other thing is is that uh, kind of doing a little bit more research into that word, the whole idea of someone's thoughts being made into reality is like, well, religion, right? Like, Darren, you and I are tulpas in the extent that, like, if you are religious, we are the manifestations of the thought of God. You know what I mean? So, um, uh, this is just a word, but it was definitely, you know, we could be making too much of it, but it certainly seemed to be thrown out there um, by the show as a concept for us to really investigate and to think about. Definitely. And, you know, I, I would just say that, you know, to everybody who feels like there are moments like this on the show or even in our podcast where, like, you know, you kind of fall down the rabbit hole with these concepts, would just say that I loved immediately after introducing this word that, in fairness, was said just once and you literally had to, at least me, unless you're somebody who just thinks about tulpas all the time, you had no idea what word Tammy said. This was immediately followed by Gordon Cole opening the door, flashing a thumbs up and saying coffee time. 
That was great. That was so awesome. Which was great. And we found out that apparently, and we have to say, this could all be just a performance being put on, but apparently the E in Janie E stands for Evans because she is the half-sister of Diane Evans. A revelation that I'm sure someone out there might have conceived of this, and full kudos to you. I have to admit that Laura Dern saying that she is the half-sister of Naomi Watts is something that has thus far only occurred in my David Lynch movie crossover fan fiction, so this was an exciting development. What was your interpretation, though, Jeff, of that moment between Diane and the FBI? It felt to me like there is this weird mutual awareness on both sides that like one side is being led somewhere one side is kind of putting on this performance perhaps everyone is sort of aware of of what's going on here it's it's always interesting to kind of try and dig deep into who knows what in these scenes between diane and the blue rose task force are you trying to suggest the possibility that diane is lying about being half sisters with janie e well like yes but i just don't know i mean like you know one assumes she has at least seen a picture of her half-sister's husband, much as she might despise her half-sister, like, surely she's received one, like, Christmas letter. Janie E. seems like someone who would send a Christmas letter even to her estranged half-sister. And, like, surely Diane, in in any normal context, would be like, huh, that looks like a chubbier, less fashionable version of the guy I I used to work with at the FBI. So, maybe? But, again... Very unsure. What what did you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For this week, I'm going to take it at face value that, that that is legit. That said, we remember a couple episodes ago when Diane got the text from someone, we assume that it is Mr. C, asking her if Gordon Cole and company have asked about Las Vegas yet. And we wonder if maybe Mr. C definitely you know, wants them headed in that direction. It's possible that he doesn't want them headed in that direction. But let's just say for a moment that Mr. C is interested in shepherding and manipulating the Blue Rose Task Force toward Las Vegas. And that is essentially why he texted Diane to ask about it. It's possible then that maybe Diane, to service that agenda, lied about having a connection with Janie E to then therefore manipulate them. I'm going to assume for this week that she's actually telling the truth, that she is half-sisters with Janie E, which is kind of a shocker. But as you kind of noted, oh, like Janie E, well, now we know what that whole unusual name is about, like half-sisters, they hate each other apparently, or at least Diane hates her. And yeah, he's married to, she's married to some loser named Douglas Jones. Everyone calls him Dougie. My first thought was, yeah, if Diane does know this woman and does know Douglas Jones, and they are connected by a, a family relation, does she also know that Douglas Jones is a dead ringer for her old boss, Dale Cooper? Um, is she kind of you know aware of all of this? I want to say it's possible that no, because as, as we've talked about on this podcast before, we still don't really know the whole story about the creation 
of Dougie Jones and why, for example, Janie E.'s wedding ring was found in Gordon Cole's stomach, we might wonder if there was a pre-existing Douglas Jones and that whatever magic, Black Lodge magic, that we know that Dougie Jones was quote-unquote manufactured, right? So well, we really don't know what the assembly process looked like there, if he was conjured out of thin air, like a tulpa, you know, or if he was maybe recycled from an existing human being. So there could have been, you know, Janie E. and Douglas Jones. Douglas Jones could have been someone else. And I I do understand that we've recently gotten information on the show that Douglas Jones, like, didn't exist. There's no record of him before 1996. So I got to square it with that information. But it made me wonder if Douglas Jones, as we know him today, as Agent Cooper's doppelganger, was actually created from a pre-existing human being. Yeah, this revelation is interesting in a lot of different ways. It does make me hope that there is a like deep cut callback to Lost Highway and like in next week's episode we see a picture from like the mid 90s of Janie E and Diane and like next to Diane is Mr. C with his long hair and next to Janie E is is Dougie just like, you know, much like the picture of, of the two Patricia Arquettes in Lost Highway. We'll see. We'll see where that goes. I I will say that there was one interesting behind the scenes story that, you know, when we found out that Diane, played by Laura Dern, has a connection to Janie E, played by Naomi Watts. And you've talked about how both of these actresses being, you know, key collaborators with Lynch over the years. And as you've written about a lot, like, which I really like this idea that, you know, Dern. Naomi Watts, Kyle MacLachlan, these longtime Lynch players coming back and really supporting this huge magnum opus vision. You know, one interesting behind-the-scenes story that was told at Comic-Con by Naomi Watts is that um, several years ago, she and Laura Dern teamed up to uh, go to David Lynch's house and basically tell him, David, make another movie. Come on, you know, like, what are you doing up here in your art studio making great fine art? Like, get behind the camera and make a movie. You need to do this. And of course, they wanted to be in it and they wanted to help in any possible way. And judging from the way that Naomi Watts told the story, what, you know, he was listening very attentively and he really appreciated their effort to like come and get him going and get him to make a movie. And he may or may not have been in the process of developing Twin Peaks The Return at the time, so he was kind of keeping that to himself. And I don't know if at that time he had any notion of having a part for either of them. But I just like the idea that these two actresses owe so much to David Lynch and who at one point several years ago kind of had this big moment to him where they came to him and petitioned him to make another movie. They are connected in a sort of familial relationship now in the show. There's some kind of parallel there that I find uh, poignant. Yeah, I mean, you know, it adds that great sort of layer of like, you know, real world. The the idea that like they are in life and on this show, these characters that are kind of motivating these on-screen David Lynch analogs, whether Lynch himself or Kyle MacLachlan, towards some inevitable, you know, moment 
moment of reckoning is just something that is super interesting and also just great because they're both great actresses. We got a little bit of movement. Jeff, things are really starting to come together in Las Vegas. Uh, Gordon Cole called up the Las Vegas branch of the FBI and told them to look for Douglas Jones and his wife, Janie E. I would say two things about this scene because we really got to get to the dream sequence. First of all, Cole kind of saying, you know, they may be armed and dangerous. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that means that these hardcore FBI guys are going to be expecting a couple with guns and a murderous attitude, uh, which could come in handy if the Hutchinses show up next week. Second of all, J.R. Ferguson, who, who of course played Stan on Mad Men, <laughs> when his sort of, you know, lieutenant said like, oh boy, I don't know, sir, how are we going to find the right Douglas Jones? <laughs> And he said, Wilson, how many times have I told you this is what we do in the FBI? That was one of my favorite moments on Twin Peaks this year. <laughs> that was great. That was so good. That was great. I just love the idea that like of, of all the law enforcement branches we've seen, the most aggro is the is the Las Vegas FBI branch. <laughs> Jeff Monica Bellucci. David Lynch dreams about her. So many people in this world have. What did we see? How many dreams were there? How many layers of reality were pulled back? I do think that with any dream sequence, even the best ones, there's these moments of kind of like, all right, like, is this too on the nose? Is this not on the nose enough? Is this all just abstract? I was kind of into this right away, but what were your kind of thoughts as you were kind of digging into Gordon Cole and Monica Bellucci playing herself in a dream within a dream, meeting up at a cafe in Paris? Can we start by noting that it begins with a very, very funny line. This abrupt segue, like Gordon is talking about one thing and then he just says, and last night I had another Monica Bellucci dream. <laughs> As if the, the latest in a series of Monica Bellucci dreams. And I could have sworn, I, I, I've watched that moment now about three or four times. I think you do hear a snicker on the soundtrack, either from Tammy or Albert, as you, you cut. You you hear a, definitely a sound that happens after he says that line, and then you cut to a shot of Tammy and Albert, and Tammy is definitely trying to stifle a smile on her face. And Albert is sort of deadpan. Like, you know, I think he's just had it up to here with his bosses, you know, like womanizing shenanigans and obsessions and such. <laughs> but like, yes, he has, I had another Monica Bellucci dream. And as that sequence uh, progresses, I, you know, I would just encourage all of our readers to kind of go online and seek out Darren's recap, because I think the way that you deconstruct the whole Monica Bellucci of it all by cross-referencing all of her participation in all sorts of different sort of dream narrative movies. I loved all that stuff, Darren. Just shout out to you there. Oh, thank you, Jeff. So, so the dream of Gordon Cole, he's at a cafe in Paris. It's interesting. Um, a real cafe, I believe, 
and you can you know you see in the distance a real hotel, the Hotel Renoir. You see all of these creperies uh, uh, like uh, down the street. All of them have strawberries like on their signs, and immediately I kind of thought of Mr. Strawberry, the Phantom Mr. Strawberry that the Warden and Mr. C have talked about. Made me wonder: Is Gordon Cole the real Mr. Strawberry? We'll probably never know. Gordon is having is just hanging out at a cafe. Cooper is there but in a sort of weird spectral form and he can't kind of see his face and he's sort of lingering like behind Cole and Cole's not really paying much attention to him. Monica Bellucci shows up with a couple friends. They greet each other warmly because again, this is something that Gordon does often with Monica Bellucci meeting at diners in Paris in dreams. Uh, They sit down. She folds her hands in a very weird position um, with her fingers forming a kind of shape. I know some people on Twitter are speculating that the shape that she forms resembles maybe a a Twin Peaks evoking a pair of mountains. Um, That's something that sign language experts uh, will bring some on next week to analyze Monica Lucci's hands. Um, And then they start talking and she says... Something that Gordon likens to, like the magic words, the ancient phrase, we are like the dreamer who dreams and lives inside the dream. But who is the dreamer, she asks. And so immediately we get this moment that feeds into all current thinking that we are that this, this reality just can't be trusted. You had some great analysis in your recap about the origin of that phrase and what it's linked to. Yeah, well, just the, the two quick things that, that I would say is uh, that's a phrase that has fascinated Lynch for a long time. He introduced at least one screening of Inland Empire with like that exact phrase. Uh, he claimed it came from another sort of uh, Sanskrit text, one that is, one that that has inspired uh, Hinduism and lots of, lots of other philosophy. I'm probably misstating the history of this, and I don't want to sound like I'm an expert, but in fairness, Lynch himself seems to have perhaps purposefully somewhat misquoted the phrase that he claimed was an ancient phrase. Um, I saw some research that the actual phrase, it's not like the dreamer who dreams and lives inside the dream. It's not this kind of this person. Um, that dreamer seems to be the creator or God. So, you know, you, you can sort of interpreted as like, is she saying that God is the dreamer, this higher power is the dreamer? Is she saying we are God? I I think that because he used it to introduce Inland Empire, which is all about like movie making and Hollywood and performance, I think that anybody writing their dissertation on how David Lynch's main subject is filmmaking, you could easily kind of like dig into that here. To me, Jeff, it is interesting, like this introduction of this large concept, dreamer who dreams and lives inside the dream. Okay, that's three dreams in one sentence. I do think that maybe the most important quote-unquote plot thing here is this question, who is the dreamer? Um, which which I thought was maybe the thing that kind of like Cole was really focusing in on. So a, a couple other things I don't really have any hard analysis for you, but again, kind of like overanalyzing every little detail in this sequence Hotel Renoir, if we are to maybe wonder if all of the signs and all of the words in this shot 
alludes to something either ironically or specifically. We might wonder if we are being confronted with Hotel Renoir to sort of maybe get us thinking about the painter um, Renoir or the filmmaker Renoir, two different guys, that the strawberries, like this is going to be my crazy kind of like over-research of the, of the day, multiple signs with multiple strawberries, my gosh, Darren, this scene is wild with strawberries, wild <gasps> strawberries, the ah! Ingmar Bergman movie, which uh, involves like an elderly gentleman on a journey in which he is reflecting on his life, picks up some tr- young travelers along the way. There's lots of dreams. There's lots of hallucinations as he sort of reckons with his mortality and his life, uh, a movie that I haven't seen in 30 years and have only the haziest recollection of, but investigating (laughs) the two Renoirs, the painter and the filmmaker, the filmmaker being kind of one of the master auteurs, the rules of the game, Grand Illusion, and many more, um, as well as Wild Strawberries. Those are things that I'll be investigating over the next week. So yes, um, back to the actual uh, substance uh, as, as it is of this dream. Monica Bellucci then kind of looks away from Gordon Cole and looks at something behind. He turns and he sees a younger version of himself sitting at a desk in the old Philadelphia office of the FBI. And if you've seen Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, you immediately recognize that this is an image from that movie. And Gordon Cole is suggests that when he turns and he sees himself there, he turns and he looks, and a that's when he says a powerful, uneasy feeling came over me. And so he he looks, he sees this younger pers- per- version of himself, and now we are no longer in Paris. We are in Philadelphia, and we are replaying a segment of that scene of Fire Walk With Me when Agent Cooper comes to him and says, you know, like Gordon, I have to tell you about this. I'm I'm very disturbed by this dream that I had, and this is the moment when also when David Bowie's uh, character Philip Jeffries comes in, and he starts kind of rambling on. If you've seen the movie, you know he talks about a woman named Judy, but that is not. We're not going to talk about Judy at all in this scene because that part of it was 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 cut out. The moment that Gordon specifically focuses in on is when Agent Jeffries points at Agent Cooper and says, Who do you think that is there? (laughs) Nice. Nice imitation there of Philip Jeffries there, Darren. Very, Very good. So, I mean, for those of us who are really into that movie and know Twin Peaks, we've always kind of wondered about that line and if Agent Jeffries was foreshadowing Agent Cooper's inevitable doubling and his doppelganger kind of getting out. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, that whole scene in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me has often been interpreted as perhaps a dream unto itself. So like, what's really fascinating to consider about this moment is, is Gordon Cole suddenly in his dream, accessing a suppressed memory, because we will later find out in this in this sequence that he had completely forgotten this event had ever occurred, which he thought was really, really weird, and we should really think about that for a second, um, and it, which he explicitly says that. But so in this dream, is he accessing a memory that he forgotten, 
or is he dreaming someone else's dream or memories? Did this moment ever really happen? Couldn't agree more. You know, it cuts from who do you think that is there to Gordon Cole in the present saying, damn, I hadn't remembered that. That is something really interesting to think about. And to me, the key moment in the scene is there's a cut over to Albert and Albert says, I'm beginning to remember that too. And it just kind of sounds like in a scene that started with this notion of like a tulpa and of how like, you know, kind of mental energy can kind of conjure this thing into being. And in a scene that to me, perhaps very explicitly references Inception, another sort of movie where two people meet and have a serious conversation within a dream at a Paris cafe. You almost feel as if in that moment, Albert has been incepted, that there's this sort of jump of this moment that could be a memory, but is maybe just a dream. And now suddenly it is sort of taking hold, you know, in another person's uh, mind memory. So I love the idea of them dexterously simultaneously saying, what, that scene? No, that wasn't a dream sequence. Look, it was a memory. And then also ending on the button of, but maybe it was just a dream sequence all along. I, I very much I very much appreciated that. This begins um, and continues, actually. It begins in this episode, but it continues something that we're seeing throughout Twin Peaks now of like, Remember that scene a couple weeks ago after the death of Bill Hastings and they're all debriefing afterwards at at Detective Mackley's office over the policeman's special of donuts and coffee and they're kind of processing this event and what they're all kind of realizing is that what they just experienced they almost like quickly forgot it or there were elements of it that they had forgotten but could now only remember when they started like sitting down and talking about it. So there is this weird thing that happens when you're in the presence of Black Lodge energy, when this there's sort of this intrusion into our reality of a Black Lodge entity or Black Lodge energy. It literally is like this explosion, this of dream energy into our reality that gets in people's heads and makes them like maybe forget it or maybe regard it like a dream. And so it's like ephemeral and it kind of like uh, goes away and they have to sort of actively recall it, maybe struggle, struggle to recall it and maybe not even recall it accurately. But th- that moment, for example, it's not surprising then that we need to maybe clarify this, that they would have forgotten that moment with Agent Jeffries because if you go back and watch that movie, that whole sequence is really weird. There's a there's time distortion there's you know space and time are being messed with by agent jeffrey's presence he is sort of teleported in from out of the blue he teleports away out of that scene he completely disappears from it and we're going to get another moment later on in this show where the the twin peaks police officers have a, a supernatural encounter and immediately have memory issues with it all so yeah um, but the other impression that i'm kind of getting is is that it's almost like there is something happening throughout all of Twin Peaks where, again, this psychic event is occurring and it's touching various people that are that are linked somehow. And it makes me wonder if by the end of this series, everyone is not really going to be like us. They may not really be sure what the heck happened. 
<laughs> like, you know, what's real, what wasn't, what was dream, what wasn't. I'm wondering if we're, we're headed toward that. And just one concluding point, uh, in the dream, Monica Bellucci shows up with a couple of friends. I have no evidence for this, but I guarantee those were just people Monica Bellucci showed up to, like, at the film set that day. And David Lynch said, like, oh, you, Monica's friends, why don't you sit down during this scene? Guarantee it. I have absolute faith that that is what happened. So, so good for you, random Bellucci bystanders. You are now in a dream within a dream inside of Twin Peaks. Um, Jeff, let's not fast forward, but let's do whatever the woodsmen do when they are kind of jumping quickly through time. Um, Checked in on the sheriff's office in Twin Peaks. Nice little moment of them capturing Chad. It turns out they've been watching him for weeks, apparently. Or sorry, watching him for months, they said. So again, uh, as far as like, uh, you know, in an episode full of these kind of like very climactic cosmic moments, that was a kind of wonderful anticlimax. Like, yeah, Chad, we've been on to you the whole time. Like, you don't need to, don't think you've been so so smart about your various uh, bits of skullduggery that you've been per- uh, perpetrating here at, here in the police department. My biggest source of relief about that was the implication that I, I think we can safely conclude that Bobby Briggs is not secretly involved in the, in the sparkle drug trade uh, that's going on with Twin Peaks that involves corrupt cops. He, he was in on the bust of Chad. So well, I'm- and- I was I was relieved by that. I'm glad you bring that up. Another just great moment of Dana Ashbrook as Bobby Briggs occurred not long after that. Uh, our kind of four intrepid explorers set off into the forest. You know, just beautiful filmmaking throughout this sequence. It felt very sort of a little bit of a fairy tale vision of people setting off into the wilderness. They got to Jack Rabbit's palace. I'd love to kind of get the production details on whether they found this sort of gigantic you know fallen tree or whether that was something that they sort of found and then sort of decorated up it was a very memorable image and there was just this great sequence of Bobby kind of standing up there saying you know these memories of him and his father we'd sit here and make up great tall tales I just thought you know it's a weirdly sort of a moving moment I find that with Bobby especially the history of that character and the history of this show just seems to come up constantly. So just really, really moved by that, Jeff, even before we got into the sort of weird stuff in the scene. I I liked how here we had more of an emotional grounding before the ground was pulled out from under us and thrown up into the sky. (laughs) No, I I, I agree. It was a very sweet moment. And I was kind of like struck by the juxtaposition of experiencing that reality in in multiple ways. One is is, is you have this beautiful Pacific Northwest forest. Um, I want to say that this is Ghostwood Forest. So it's nature, you know? <laughs> nature, damn it. Um, so it's, it's just nature. And then, <laughs> but then they find this path that is clearly a man-made path. And as they're walking the path, they're commenting on Major Briggs' listening station that burned up. There's nothing left of it. They hauled out the wreckage a long time ago, which I thought was a little, little clever beat that saves the production a lot of money of actually building <laughs> a wrecked. But then you get to Jack Rabbit's Palace, and it's, yeah, it's this like this husk of an old tree. 
and the way that it's cut down, the formation at top, it, it definitely looked like a creature, maybe even a horned creature of some kind. But if you think about it as a palace, it's it's a ruined palace, you know. Um, it's so I, I love this sort of like juxtaposition of, of of just nature going wild with the mythology of the Briggs boys that have been that was once physically existed here and has been imprinted on this place and now kind of exists as this sort of like wrecked ruined mythology. And in a wormhole I won't go down, it kind of reminded me of the the Yellow King and the descriptions of ruined Carcosa. And I won't go, I won't take us down a, a true detective rabbit hole here. But and now we're going to get intersected with another kind of layer of reality, which is that this is also a very like you know mythic Black Lodge landscape as well. So from Jack Rabbit's palace, they they load their pockets with dirt and then they walk in a certain direction, two hundred and fifty three yards away, and they trudge through the forest. Forest, by the way, which through one shot established that there are electrical lines that are running through this forest. Makes sense. There once was an Air Force listening station in here, but we also know that power lines are conduits for Black Lodge energy and maybe spirits to travel or or feed off of. And they get to this clearing that resembles, but is not uh, it is similar to the Glastonbury Cove Grove area where the entrance into the Black Lodge, but this is a different kind of place, a different kind of clearing, lots of smoke, lots of electrical effects. There seems to be a beam of light that is shooting up into the sky. There is that little pit of oil that you mentioned. I think that's a good call. I think it is oil. I thought maybe it was just pure creamed pain and sorrow. Uh, Garmin, Garmin Bosia maybe there for a while, a, a hot stew of it. And then there was also one of a, a sort of creepy, once again, another one of Lynch's like naked female bodies just lying in the woods, uh, in mm-hmm. the grass. And, uh, and who was that person, Darren? Thanks for asking, Jeff, because I know exactly who that was, kind of, sort of. Um, yes, in in the single most shocking, but but I have to say, quite endearing reprisal of a character who we never thought we'd see again. That is the character who we saw in the Purple Room back in part three. She was last seen kind of doing that weird thing with the lever in the space elevator right before she fell into space, leaving Agent Cooper very confused uh, and us as well uh, have to say didn't think we'd ever see her again but very glad that she seems to have found her way here um, I believe her her name is is Nado or Nido and now that I mispronounced that I feel that I have to further mispronounce the name of the actress is Nay Yuki uh, important because she was in Inland Empire as a strange person on the street giving a speech that lasts about 10 minutes so another <laughs> interesting kind of callback to moments from David Lynch's career. And, you know, I just kind of thought, like, the, the first sight of her to me kind of recalled, you know, there's a moment in, in Melancholia where Kirsten Dunst is sort of, like, nude out in the wilderness, kind of staring up into space as a strange thing is happening, which is indeed what wound up happening in this scene. But also just... What's going on with her face, which we didn't necessarily get a great look at uh, in her first debut appearance? Just the gashes there; those those look to me like those were like almost stab wounds or something like that. So just there's just a lot of like 
sudden unexpected confusion in her arrival here. Um, and that was before the wormhole opened in the sky. So I don't know. Do you have any kind of like ready interpretation of how she wound up there, Jeff? Did she come out of a hole in the sky, out of a hole in the earth? Uh, unclear right now. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I believe her name is Nato. So just to get that kind of clear, but like I got the sense that she probably did fall out of the sky through one of those vortexes that open in the sky. We're now getting a sense that these vortexes are not necessarily unique to, they they might be able to open anywhere in the world, but now we know that they open up in Twin Peaks. We now know that they open up in in South Dakota. And we now know, as we'll talk about in a minute, they open up in London. Um, but I got the... <laughs> in London back alleys, actually. But yeah, like, so here in this magical spot in Twin Peaks, uh, in Ghostwood Forest, this is a place where at certain times of day or given certain conditions, one of those vortexes opens up in the sky. And my assumption is that she fell through space and then she fell to earth and she's there. And yeah, what's going on with her eyes? You know, the impression that I get, Darren, from those gouge marks, the first feature that we have to talk about her in terms of her face is that skin has grown over her eyes. And what that's all about, that has to be kind of some kind of reference that we need to investigate and some kind of illusion out there. If our readers have any research on that, I'd love to hear it. But skin has grown over her eyes, either as a result of maybe some kind of birth defect or she has done something, something happened to her that has caused skin to grow over her eyes. So those gouge marks, Darren, I take as attempts by her to rip away that skin, maybe to oh. see. and. Um, and we also need to note that when we encountered her in part three, she was stuck in some kind of like time warp where her, her you know, time skittered and stuttered and it only settled and became continuous when Agent Cooper touched her. But she was incapable of actually, well, I think that she does speak a language. Um, she does communicate through some unique language of her own. We, we just don't know what it is, but it's it's a sounds like a bunch of clicks and sounds. And she's continuing to do that. We'll, we'll get more of it later. But yeah, like I, I, I got the sense that she fell to earth through one of those vortexes and has landed in this place. And so at exactly 2.53 in the afternoon, which is when Frank and Bobby and Andy and uh, Hawk were all told to be there in this space at, this, at that place at 2.53. At 2.53, they look up into the sky and another one of those vortex forms and they all look up into it. And Andy, who is the one who is uh, attending to NATO. And can we talk a little bit about, um, we can overanalyze every single moment here, but let's just kind of dote on something that's really sweet and poignant about Andy being the one who is attending to this fallen naked female form. We remember in Twin Peaks, the pilot, when the body of Laura Palmer was found and Andy, you know, was there with Sheriff Truman and he, he couldn't keep it together. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he was just crying. He was weeping. It was kind of played for laughs, 
but it was also really poignant and, and sad, like his heart was breaking over human despair. He wasn't yet calloused. He'll never be a callous detective who just can look at like a dead body and kind of go, yeah, big deal. Like, But he was literally heartbroken by this and he couldn't keep it together. He couldn't do his work. Now, many years later, he sees another fallen person and she's alive, but he immediately goes to her and attends to her and he holds her hand. This is some serious major growth and it's a different expression of the same kind of empathy that and that that he has but he can actually enter into and be with that person and i wonder if that is significant darren in in light of what happens next that vortex opens up in the sky they all look but the camera stays on him as he looks up as he's holding nato's hand and something seems to be maybe calling to him and he lets go of her and he stands up and he's taken, he's gone. As if he was chosen, you know, of those four, he was chosen. And I think all of those are good people in their own way, but something distinguished Andy um, in terms of being brought up into what we found to be, let's just call it, we don't know for sure, but the White Lodge. And he has, he's, he's brought and he's put into a seat um, it's the same seat that we saw Agent Cooper sit in in the very first image of this show when he had that mysterious encounter with the character that was one, was once known as the Giant. We now know him to be the character known as uh, the Fireman. That is his name now, the Fireman. And he has an audience with the Fireman. And Darren, can, can, can you walk us through the encounter with the Fireman? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the one thing that I would add is uh, the, the presence of Andy in this scene was was so shocking, but it did make me wonder if quite secretly, you know, we've thought all along, this is the story of the hero, Agent Cooper, who saves the day. If, beginning with that moment of Andy crying back in the pilot, we've actually been been watching all along the origin story of a very different kind of superhero. Or, anyhow, so Jeff, he sits down, he's in the chair where Agent Cooper was way back at the very beginning of part one. There's the giant, Mr. Question Marks. Turns out he's the fireman. And uh, he sort of raises his hand in greeting. And then suddenly, when he puts his hand down, there's, for lack of a better word, a thing in Andy's lap. It's a thing that's like a pipe with smoke and a box. All words that uh, are perhaps unhelpful and not very descriptive. And uh, what ensued was kind of like what I imagined would happen if you rewatch this whole season of Twin Peaks, indeed the whole series, uh, under the influence of, of, of opium. Andy sort of looks up and sees this interesting sort of screen. It kind of reminded me of when you see some of the early silent movie screens and, like you know, all around the side, there's this weird sort of decoration. The smoke kind of goes up there. Um, and then on screen, Andy kind of watches and we see these moments that we recognize the experiment unleashing Bob and the gotta light guy, the woodsman outside of the convenience store. But we also see the moment of the girl running through the Twin Peaks high school, something that happened in the pilot and a moment that recurred in part one in the kind of extended credit sequence of the first chapter of the revival season. It's a shot of the curtains. There's a shot of, I think my favorite shot 
out of this whole thing because it, it was as if the movie itself was kind of shrugging. Was Laura Palmer flanked by the angels who appeared in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me? Like, I truly believe that that is the fireman himself doing that little guy made out of punctuation marks shrugging. Like, just like, yeah, you know, you get it. Laura Palmer, angels, whatever. He also sees two Coopers. He sees a phone ring. And then in, in the, the least scrutable part of all of this, just because it wasn't something we could readily recognize, Andy saw himself and Lucy. Lucy was wearing a sweater that I'm not sure you've seen her wear yet. And I'm, I would love if any listener out there, someone has surely been sort of putting together the sweater theory of this season because Lucy's had a lot of memorable ones. But Andy was kind of leading her towards a room. It might have been the prison cells. Lucy kind of was walking towards it. Cut to the telephone pole that has been sort of haunting Carl Rod for many years now, numbered six. And then just like that, the smoke kind of came out of the screen, went back into Andy's piece of drug paraphernalia. There was this sense that maybe this information was arriving in his brain. And then he blinked away. So Jeff, yes, it was just one of those scenes again. (laughs) It was like Andy got sucked into a dream world and then was given a whole bunch of information that was probably itself like a download of a dream that only makes sense to him. I look forward to finding out how he interprets all of that moving forward. But the thing that did strike me was the linear time flow of all of those images which made the moment in which we saw that uh, again I agree the the oddest bit in all of that was the was the bit that we haven't seen yet in which Andy is guiding Lucy through a hallway of what looks to be the sheriff station he positions her to look at something and then he backs away from her to be behind her and I don't, you know, like I I assume that moment is going to take place at some point in the future. And I think that it's either going to be a moment of horror or a moment of joy. Like Mm -hmm. it's, I got the sense of like, he's bringing her into a place to show her something and it's going to be the entire cast reunited. You know, it's uh, (laughs) a, it's a, it's agent Cooper and he's back in the flesh or it's Michael Sarah back as Wally Brando and he's brought friends. I don't know. Um, But that moment, like, I want to know what that's all about. It wasn't the last moment in the sequence because you're right. It once again showed us that telephone pole. So we kind of wonder if if, if that's going to factor into things at the end. But but I would just I would just say, speaking of our superhero f- analysis, um, the giant Mr. Question Marks, the fireman, in your recap, you kind of uh, link him to the Promethean gods um, who give fire to their people. And you kind of wonder if the fireman kind of functions you know, in this regard, among Black Lodge deities, he's the one that's most friendly to humanity, and he's trying to give them knowledge. He's trying to give them awareness to allow them to survive this battle with meddling gods and demons affecting their lives. But the fireman is also an interesting uh, word to assign to him, given what we saw of him in part eight, in which that alarm 
seem to be going off in that parlor room, drawing oh. his attention uh, th- through that open slit in the in the White Lodge, and he's beholding what we might see as some alarming spiritual condition about the world. And he goes into the theater and he puts up the images on his own screen of the atomic bomb of Trinity blasting, of the experiment spewing Bob and mutant eggs onto the world, of the woodsman infestation of the convenience store. And then he responds by floating up into the air and kind of like letting loose a bunch of golden particles that turn into this you know, orb of, of, of Laura Palmer that is kissed by Senorita Dido and then sent to Earth. So he, he's a superhero too. He's a fireman. He's responding to fire, to catastrophe, to outbreaks of destruction that is afflicting humanity and causing pain and sorrow. And he does something about it. And he bestows gifts of knowledge and apparently super-powered green rubber gloves, um, which we <laughs> We'll soon find talk about in a second. But I thought that was, you know, fireman. That's what I think of when I think of that name. Couldn't agree more. And of course, you know, one of the great things that's so defining for Twin Peaks is that David Lynch and Mark Frost, as much as they are guys who like roll deep into transcendental meditation and stories about early 20th century mysticism, there is also this fascinating love for like, you know, the the basic, you know, utility law enforcement uniformed people who kind of define American society. It makes absolute sense that this sort of godlike figure would describe himself as a fireman. That I just I, I love that. That was sometimes the unexpected and, you know, very inevitable, which, you know, which has really defined a lot of the great things in this season. He sends Andy back an interesting bit where we kind of see Sheriff Truman and Hawk and Bobby return to Jack Rabbit's palace, kind of moving in that strange stop-starty way that we now connect with the woodsmen. Um, I, I, I believe that the reason why they returned there, and indeed the thing that saved them, was that they had soil from Jack Rabbit's palace. Um, that, that seems to have somehow grounded them. You sort of wonder what would have happened if they hadn't have had that, what kind of world they would have fallen into but they kind of you know returned there and then Andy appears he's holding uh, the woman and he just says in, in in a great sort of you know grand hero moment uh, we need to get her down the mountain she's very important and there are people that want her dead and to me Jeff you know just and we'll talk about this in a second when we get to to Sarah Palmer one of the things that I think I just loved about this episode was that You know, a lot of times in a mystery, sci-fi, fantasy, serial soap, of which we are fortunately beset by many of those nowadays, as we get closer to the end, there is kind of this sense of like, okay, yeah, like, you know, we we could have guessed some of this stuff. If you told me that uh, (laughs) one of the latter episodes of this season would be Andy holding the woman from the Purple Lodge and saying that lots of people want her dead, that that, that she's seems to be sort of some new Laura Palmer figure wouldn't have guessed that in a hundred million years. So I just, I loved that kind of aspect of it. This, the shocking fact that things that we didn't realize would be important are in fact, very important now. Not a long observation, but just to affirm once again, one of the great joys and beauties of this very weird series is 
just the ability to surprise us from week to week. You don't know where you're going to start. You don't know what where you're going to end. You don't know what's going to happen, points in between. You don't know who this show is about, what character is about. It's about everyone. I love what they did with Andy in this episode. I thought it was it was really, given what we know about Andy throughout the life of his the series, I thought it was really cool. He takes her back down to the prison cell. A truly fascinating sequence where, you know, Lucy kind of gives her pajamas. They kind of lock her up for her own good, although it seems to me like it's never a good thing to be locked up in uh, Twin Peaks. And then you just get this great, you know, Chad is kind of down at one corner, just, you know, seeming to emanate, uh, you know, Garmin Bosia with every word. He insults Andy. Andy gets this great, like, almost Jimmy Stewart worthy moment. Like, you know, you're a very bad person, Chad. You give good policemen a bad name. And then this is where we discover there is a truly just disgusting drunkard over in the corner who's repeating what everyone says. And just to kind of further taunt Chad, he kind of, you know, echoes, good policemen, a bad name. Which leads into the sort of scene of, you know, you have NATO down here saying her strange language that I assume is how how they speak in Finland. You have Chad kind of saying things. You have the drunk guy kind of repeating after both of them. Chad says, it, it's a fucking nut house. Now, the drunk, Jeff, lots of time spent on him. Do we think he's a person we should pay attention to? Do we think the fact that he's kind of echoing what other people are saying, like Dougie, does that matter? I noticed he was bleeding, and there's a part of me that's kind of like, wait a second, is that Billy? But I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pin in that for right now. Uh, I wasn't sure if you had any other kind of thoughts about that about that very strange and deeply disturbing, but also kind of funny sequence. Let's talk about him when we get to the final up scene of this episode. But yeah, my theory is that he's Billy. But what an image. Like, his face is completely shattered. He's bleeding out of his nose. He's bleeding out of his mouth. There seems to be some kind of, like, weird thing taped to his face. I don't know if it was, like, an oxygen tube mask or some kind of makeshift bandage that had been affixed to his face. Did he have a run-in with uh, Freddy's uh, super-powered glove? <laughs> Did he get pulverized <laughs> with a with a face shot? Did he run afoul with Sarah Palmer, <laughs> who took a bite out of his cheek? I don't know, but I think that character is, is important. One note about this scene... So they put NATO in this robe that uh, that Lucy apparently had f- from the time that the dog got lost in the sheriff's department station. I just I, w- I, w- I want to know what that story is all about. Just like a, <laughs> I'm glad that we had these clothes. Oh, yeah, I, I had this robe that's hanging out here from the time that the dog got lost in the station. What? <laughs> like so? Uh, that was funny. You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast with Jeff Jensen and Darren Franich. Guys, there's a reason why Norma Jennings hasn't hired too many new people at the Double R Diner in the last few decades. It's because Heidi and Shelley are great at what they do. They're great waitresses. They're just great people. And here's the thing. It's hard to find great talent nowadays. That's why it's a good thing there's ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology matches the right people to your job better than anyone else else. Because see, that's why ZipRecruiter is different. 
It's not like the other job sites. It doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. That means no juggling emails or calls to your office. Just screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. Hopefully Norma uses ZipRecruiter when she's looking for waitresses for the other franchises in Norma's Double R Cafe. Let's get into the secret superhero origin story of Freddy Fists, maybe? We'll work on that. Freddy, a character who we actually did see way back in part two. Props to anybody who picked this particular thing out. I just kind of saw this circulating around social media. Um, he, he sort of walked into the roadhouse with James. Turns out that James, like a lot of uh, guys of a certain age who uh, spends his nights at a bar reliving his glory days, he's just a regular guy with a regular job working security at the Great Northern. It's his birthday and he's celebrating it at work with his young pal, Freddie, played by the actor. His name is Jake Wardle. Uh, and if you're wondering what else he's done besides Twin Peaks, the answer is nothing, uh, according to his IMDb. So an incredible debut here to celebrate. Uh, James's birthday. I love how Freddie calls him Jimmy, by the way. There's just even even more <laughs> sort of like, you know, e- even more of this sense of like, you know, James who, you know, was this character who had an interesting presence in the original show. I think in some respects, like, you know, was never awesomer than in the pilot and that incredible close-up scene of him and, and Donna, but who certainly, you know, was so this sort of vision of like the kind of James Deanian outlaw, perhaps sort of in an era that had sort of lost track of that of that iconography now he's just like a guy you know a bald guy named jimmy working security at the place that happens to be run by the guy who was sleeping with the love of his life many many years ago but at least he gets to hear cool stories from freddie that story jeff uh i'm so taken you know we should have talked about this the way these episodes are kind of put together it's very unclear, like, you know, in the writing, were these scenes close together? Is it possible that they were originally much further apart and just in the editing process, Lynch decided they belong together? You know, the giant is a character who's just lingered mysteriously for literally decades. And now we had two different sort of perspectives on that character where he where both stories he introduced himself as the fireman and seemed to announce what his purpose was and I, I almost wondered if there was kind of like some insane joke about that and this sort of mythology dumping but um do, do you want to kind of uh, walk us through uh the the saga that that freddie told about his mystical green garden glove yeah it had a weird superhero origin story but the kind of weird offbeat superhero origin story that you would get from like a Daniel Close ball comic book um, <laughs> and in a bit of research that I kind of want to go down and investigate I, I, I kind of wondered 
if there was some kind of implied Daniel Close references in this episode, given that Close and Lynch have often been compared to each other. At Las Vegas FBI guy, one of them was named Wilson, I believe. But this oh. character, Freddy, with his like green rubber glove, immediately uh, reminded me of the, the, the first great eight ball storyline, like a velvet glove cast in iron. Um, <gasps> But this this is Lynch's unique take on it. I'm throwing references at you guys that may mean nothing because I haven't investigated them. They're just coming off the top of my brain right here, right now as we're talking. So let's just deal with the text. So Freddie tells this story. He's from London. He was having this, you know, night like many other nights in his life, drinking with his friends. And on this particular night kind of was feeling confronted with that he was essentially living a loser life and doing nothing for the world, um, uh, doing nothing of value. Stumbling home drunk one night, goes through an alley, sees a stack of boxes, I believe, decides to climb up them and jump off of them. And in the context of the storytelling, I think you're made to wonder if this is just a drunken lark or if it's maybe, Darren, like a suicide attempt, confronting with his meaningless existence as a drunkard, a young drunkard in London doing nothing for humanity, nothing of value, not helping anyone. I think he says he decides he finds these boxes. He jumps off of them. But instead of crashing hard, I guess, while he's up there, maybe before he jumps, he sees like a tunnel opening in the sky. And when he jumps, he ascends. He, he, he finds himself floating and then he ascends up through this tunnel in the sky, which brings him into the White Lodge. And he has the audience, an audience with the firemen. And the firemen gives him these very specific, weirdly specific instructions. And he says that you're going to go back down to London, you're going to go home, but you're going to seek out this hardware store that's near your home. You're going to go down this certain aisle. You're going to find some boxes. Some of them are going to be open. Some of them that are not. They all contain green kitchen-like gloves for, for household work. One of them's going to be open, but instead of finding a pair of gloves, you're going to find one glove. And so you are going to purchase that glove. So Freddie does as he's told. <laughs> because and, and maybe because the fireman promised him that if he did this, he would find his destiny. So this guy that's kind of like feeling like his life is meaningless and he's searching for some kind of meaning, sure, he'll take a chance on the crazy drunken drug trip like encounter with like with the fireman who tells him nonsense stuff. So he decides to go to the hardware store. He goes down that aisle and sure enough, he finds that green glove. He tries to buy it. But the clerk won't sell it to him because protocol demands that he sells him a pair of gloves. He can't just sell him one. And Freddie says, no, you're going to sell it to me. The guy says, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, you're not. I think he just essentially forces his money on the clerk. He takes the glove. He walks out. The clerk chases him and tries to get it back from him. Because, man, that guy's a stickler for rules. And and Freddy decides to respond by putting the glove on and just basically, like, punching him in the face. 
which I guess has the effect of breaking the man's neck. Is that what I, was that correct? Yes, yes. He sort of says like, uh, you know, by, by the way his head was, ha- you know, here's a crack, by the way his head was hanging, he said, I fear I've snapped his Gregory, which of course is Cockney rhyming slang, Gregory Peck neck, I fear I've snapped his neck. But Freddie doesn't say anything else about the job's worth. Then he just says, again, someone else sort of suddenly remembering something from a dream in this episode. That's when I remembered the fireman also told me, once you've got the glove on, go to Twin Peaks, Washington, United States of America, and there you'll find your destiny. Now, he doesn't say, so I fled England uh, having murdered someone and came here. But but that seems to be the implication there, which is pretty, pretty astonishing. <laughs> yes. And then he goes to the airport to buy an airplane ticket. Turns out that one has already been purchased for him. So his <laughs> life suddenly becomes really surreal. Um, One note about this magic green glove that he now has, he can't take it off. I think all of this took place about six months ago, he said. I think that during that time, he tried to take it off, but it's now essentially like part of him. It's grafted onto his hand, so he, he can't take it off. It is on his right hand, And I think that these things are important to note, Um, but it's on his right hand. So yes, Freddie, newcomer to America, perhaps fugitive from the law, perhaps a murderer. I think it was about this time in the episode, Darren, that honestly, I had weirdness overload. (laughs) So many (laughs) things are happening, like so much strange things, so much odd things, so many random things. And now we get this Freddy guy with his magic green glove that gives him a pulverizing punch. And we're immediately speculating, how does this guy factor into the end game? Have Mark Frost and David Lynch basically given them a character that has the physical ability to fight? Like Mr. C is some kind of like big showdown looming, an arm wrestling match, perhaps um, some kind of big, boxing match, perhaps, uh, between uh, Freddy and Mr. C. I like and don't like, or I'm just kind of mystified by this sort of like just flood of young, peculiar characters that are flooding into Twin Peaks and like may have nothing to do with anything or may have everything to do with everything. Um, From people like Freddy to now Billy presumed Billy in the jail cell to all of these like young people that have these encounters at the roadhouse, like at the end of every episode to all the people that Audrey is describing. Don't forget about trick. Don't forget about trick. Right. Trick was under house arrest. (laughs) Right. Lucky to be alive. So James, sorry, Jimmy takes in all of Freddie's crazy story and just kind of goes, wow. (laughs) And, and as, as (laughs) not like, so wait a minute, you broke a guy's neck with your magic glove? Like, like no, he's just like, he just takes it in and kind of accepts. I think that maybe Jimmy knows enough, James knows enough about the weirdness of Twin Peaks that maybe this isn't the strangest thing he's ever heard in his life, but it's just like, okay, I'll, I'll take it as a given. As you noted in your recap, out of, you know, for some strange, peculiar reason, an offhanded Beatles reference is snuck into this dialogue. <laughs> 
in which as Freddie's telling his story, he starts quoting the Paul McCartney middle section of A Day in the Life. You know, woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, went downstairs and uh, had a cup and looking up, I noticed I was late and he kind of kind of goes off and off and are we going to have to pay for this? Me singing this? I don't know. So let's not sing it anymore. But as you note, he kind of like cuts off the his paraphrased singing of that middle section um, when he talks about having a smoke, but he doesn't say, and then somebody spoke and I went into a dream. So, so, Again, another sort of implied dream reference, another implied inception dream reference, because, you know, if you take those lyrics seriously, somebody spoke and I went into a dream almost seems to suggest someone is psychically influencing someone and going into a dream. Anyway, that's Freddy, apparently the Superman Iron Fist of this story, and he was introduced into the mix. And then Jimmy says, James says, hey, you sit here, wait for this last shipment of the night before we go to the roadhouse, because all James lives for, this is how sad James' life is, is that he has this job. People need a job. He has a job at the Great Northern. I love the ironies that you note, but he lives for the roadhouse. That seems to be that that place where he experiences like real life. So like at the end of every night that they go and listen to a band, seeks out Renee, you know, his, his newest crush, the woman he's sweet on, but she's married apparently. Um, so that's kind of a dicey situation. James says, okay, you wait for the shipment to arrive. I'm going to go check on the, the what, the furnaces? Yes, yes, the furnaces. Maybe just like like, like one furnace singular, yeah, down in the sort of like yeah. uh, inner uh, subterranean reaches of the Great Northern. Right, So, and, and then we'll, we'll go to the roadhouse. So um, James goes into the boiler room, essentially, of the Great Northern Hotel. You have all of these sort of boilers and furnaces, some of them seething smoke, very eraser-headish, like, you know, industrial vibe down there. I thought. Um, But as he kind of enters this one space, you hear, I believe, the kind of humming that that Ben Horn has been hearing in the hotel for several uh, hours now, and it's very unsettling. And he's, you get the sense that James feels something that's making him full of dread, and he scans, and he looks, and he sees a door, and it's shut. And I was immediately creeped out. What's behind the door, James? What's behind the door? So like a back door into a black lodge hell. I don't know. Um, to be continued because we, we, we left James. And is this when we went to Sarah Palmer? Yes. We cut to an exterior somewhere in Twin Peaks outside of the Elks Point number nine bar. Um Sarah Palmer's smoking, walking down the street, walks into the bar, orders herself a Bloody Mary. Uh, she has indeed run low on her supplies, I guess, uh, after that moment that we saw her. Well, let's not get into when things take place. That's too confusing. There's a trucker down at the end of the bar. I initially thought he recognized her, but no, he's just kind of a guy. He's out. He asks her, you drinking alone there? She asks him, very politely, I might add, mind your own business, please. To which he responds, that's not very polite. And she says, it wasn't meant to be polite. And we're immediately in this deeply disturbing, predatory 
Richard Horn at, at the roadhouse grabbing the girl kind of moment of just pure toxicity oozing out of this guy. He's saying, it's a free country. It's a free country. And then he stresses the first part of the word country. You know, I was immediately, we've talked this before, Jeff, that, you know, Lynch just does like disturbing and, and does evil so well. And I loved how just kind of out of thin air, he kind of conjures up the feeling of of this guy. He, you know, he calls Sarah names, you know, says, says she's a lesbian, says much worse things, says you like to eat, whatever. And she says, I'll eat you. And that really gets him angry. That really gets him angry. Right about now, in about 30 seconds, is the moment when I when I think I just texted you like 30 exclamation points at once. Because he he, he now gets very violent in his words, says he's going to uh I'm not you know what, not gonna even say it. Says so he's gonna do real real awful things to her that people shouldn't do to each other. But before you get to that, let, let's just, you know, we, we don't have to say everything that he said, but Lynch does evil very well. He does misogyny like, uh, like it's 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 weird to say he does misogyny well, <laughs> but that whole scene is just dripping with just like hatred, male hatred for women, uh, males, you know, sexual objectification of women, and full of. And for me, very clearly, what this scene kind of really suggested is that among many spiritual fallen conditions that Twin Peaks grieves and is appalled by, like misogyny, cultural misogyny is one of them. And you have this moment um, that evokes so many other moments in Lynch's films that deal with misogyny, um, but Twin Peaks basically being one of his chief texts about misogyny. And he's saying all of these awful, evil, you know, Bobby Peruish things to Sarah Palmer, the mother of maybe the chief archetype that Lynch has ever given us to sort of society's dehumanization of women and a victim of misogyny. And, uh, and then so as context, I offer that as context for what is about to happen next. Darren, please tell us what happens next. Well, let's just say uh, on a weekend when I, I didn't know how much I wanted to see a mediocre, toxic white dude get his neck bitten off uh, <laughs> until it happened. But boy, a, a scene that in any other context would have felt scary, felt incredibly triumphant. Sarah Palmer yeah. pulls off her face Within her face, we see smoke, monochrome, black and white. Two little things appeared, and I've kind of freeze-framed it. They look kind of insectile uh, for, for no apparent reason. It made me think of the spider thing at the end of It. Um, but, you know, there's also this sense of kind of these odd kind of like pincers, something sharp. We see a hand kind of appear, and you noted something interesting about the hand, which we'll get to in a second, Jeff. There's a moment where a mouth kind of appears in there, this smile. And <laughs> Sarah, unfortunately, I initially thought that her face kind of half pulled off, that her mouth was moving when she said this. Uh, that actually didn't happen. So we could kind of have a debate about if she's even actually saying this. But a voice suddenly says when that mouth appears, do you really want to fuck with this? <laughs> Oh, man. Then she puts her face back on and uh, bites his neck off. And uh, Jeff, 
that was a, a loony goddamn scene that really rewrote everything that I thought was going on with this season. Your interpretations are extremely desired right now. So the first thing that we need to note here is, is that Sarah Palmer is taking her face off in the same manner in which Laura Palmer took her face off in part two of this series, when Agent Cooper, still in the Black Lodge, has this encounter with Laura Palmer, and they're kind of discussing about whether or not she's alive or she's dead. And, you know, and Laura says, I am dead, yet I live. And then she grabs her face and takes it off, and inside is just white, blinding light. And then she puts her face back on. And then after having a whispered encounter with Agent Cooper that leaves him stunned, she disappears out of Black Lodge, and we haven't seen her since. And so now cut to, what, like 12 hours later, we're getting this moment with her alcoholic, despairing, suffering mom in this bar in which she's being harassed by the kind of scuzzball, misogynistic guy that used to prey on on girls like Laura, that Laura had to suffer her entire life when she had a life. And Sarah like responds by taking off of her, her face the way that Laura took off hers, but instead of revealing blight, bright white uh, bright light, yeah, this 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 deep darkness, these things shoot out of it like like pincers, maybe a forked tongue, maybe needles, like all of these things kind of came to mind. And then that hand, that that deathly, ghostly hand, uh, it was it's a right hand with a blackened ring finger. And um, if if you've been sort of like hand tracking, and finger tracking and ring tracking this entire season. You know that right hands are have factored into this season predominantly. Uh, the ring finger is that's the same ring finger that the owl ring goes on. The ring finger kind of identified as by by Gordon Cole earlier in the season on um, the spiritual mound. So you you have this metaphor for I think a black and darkened soul. Uh, you didn't really need that metaphor to understand that about Sarah. Um, but then you had that evil smile in there that could have been, I, I wonder if it's a Laura Palmer smile. I kind of got the Cheshire cat smile, which kind of like makes sense in the context of of an episode about going into the woods and going down rabbit holes and such. But But yeah, I mean, my initial thought is like, we could just be looking at a sort of artful, abstract, weird, surreal depiction of the the spiritual state of Sarah Palmer. We don't need to assign any supernatural significance to this at all, really. You know what I mean? Like it could just be like Lynch's surreal description of of Sarah Palmer, like and her spiritual state. And that she's just destroyed inside, and now she's just a raging thing of violence and, and resentment and anger, and she's capable of things like what she did. But the other thought that I completely had was that she's possessed by a Black Lodge entity and possibly by Laura Palmer herself. And by the way, the trucker cap and a truck you uh, t-shirt 
And it kind of reminded me of that great line from earlier in the season from Beulah, the world is just full of truck drivers, right? (laughs) You had texted me that, and that is my favorite analysis of that scene. Would just add to that, you know, I'm kind of all the way in on Sarah Palmer is either possessed by Laura Palmer or has somehow become some element of Laura Palmer. Um, You know, we discussed this way back in our analysis of part two, but Laura kind of disappears from the Black Lodge, and then we get that scene of Sarah Palmer watching television. We should note, though, that when Laura Palmer pulled her face off, it was a really sort of lovely, glowing light, and this was quite the opposite. I wonder if we may interpret that there is something oppositional about whatever force is within Sarah, or perhaps what had been light has now gone dark. These are all just random things I'm putting out there. Um, we'll, We'll also just add... The bartender comes up and immediately became my fourth or fifth favorite character in this episode. Sarah says he just fell over. And the bartender says, with half his neck missing? And then turns towards the bar and says, honey, call 911. We got a dead one at the bar. And of course, I I fully believe that Lynch and Frost intended this. We have a dead one at the bar, and you see Sarah Palmer standing there, and you wonder, does that have two meanings? Is the dead one Laura? Is the dead one Sarah? Unclear, uh, to quote Sarah Palmer, and full props to Grace Zabriskie for her performance in this episode, sure is a mystery, huh? Let's round up with the most important mystery, Billy! Who is Billy? Billy! I'm kind of with you, Jeff. The flood of strange, somewhat familiar to the point where you always kind of think you've seen them before, but also totally unfamiliar young characters who just hang out at the roadhouse, was maybe perplexed by it back when it was Sky Ferreira and her friend talking about penguins. It's now one of my favorite recurring parts of the show. But we get these two young women. I don't believe we've seen them before, but one of them looked kind of familiar. So perhaps she was she's been at the roadhouse before. First, they're talking about, you know, one young lady is getting high, maybe on Sparkle. Maybe at that nut house. Don't go to that nut place. Never go to that nut place. Good advice uh, for life. And then the one young lady reveals that she was there when Billy disappeared. And you kind of mentioned this. Yet another strange superhero origin story in an episode full of them. Billy jumps over a fence, a six-foot fence, runs like crazy to the back door, blood gushing out of his nose and mouth just like it was in Audrey's dream. We notice very quickly that the way this young lady is telling the story is very strange. She seems oddly fixated on the fact that she can't quite recall if her uncle was there or not. And then there's a moment where her friend asks her, what's your mom's name? And there's a pause. And you and I, I believe, had the same thought, which was that she was going to say, my mom's name is Audrey. But no, she says, it's Tina, the woman who Audrey so despises, who Charlie called on the phone. And when she says Tina, the soundtrack just shifts and it becomes dark and it it begins to sort of like rise up above the din of the roadhouse. 
real strange stuff. It immediately made me think of the famous kind of like, you know, diner fast food scene from Mulholland Drive. Those two guys kind of talking just casually and then things take a strange turn. But you've already, you've kind of dug deep into some, some dream analysis of this scene. How do you kind of think it connects back to Audrey and Charlie and everything we've we've heard about Billy before? I'm absolutely in agreement with you. We haven't talked about this part before, so we are of like mind uh, on this too, I too had a flash to the diner scene in Mulholland Drive, that sort of unsettling kind of conversation between them. The text of their conversation was weird, but the interaction between these two women what was weird. The way that Tina's daughter is telling the story, it's like she's trying to you know, once again in this episode, we have people struggling with their memory, things that they should remember, but they don't. It now feels like they're recalling a dream. But then her, the person that she's telling this story to is casting all of these suspicious looks at Tina's daughter and is prying for information. Even the question she asks, like, what is your mom's name? It sounds like that she's trying to get information out of her. It was just a very weird, it, in a night of unsettling scenes, this one to end on maybe unsettled me the most because it really captured this feeling of like, it's not that I don't know what's going on in the show. I I actually kind of don't know if I know anything anymore, but you just can't trust the reality of anything. But upon watching that scene again, I'm completely struck by the way it begins. They're talking about you know, we, we enter the conversation in the middle of the conversation without any context for it. And they're talking about hanging out at that nut house. And they say the word nut house over and over again. And it made me wonder, Darren, if they're actually talking about a real nut house, like a mental institution. And we mentioned in last week's episode with the scene with Audrey, when she's talking to um, Charlie and she says, it feels like Ghostwood. And the way that she was talking about Ghostwood, it didn't seem like she was talking about the forest. She was talking about maybe a place, an institution. Is there a nut house called Ghostwood? You know? But yeah, like, so when she asks, what's your mother's name? And there is that long pause. And you and I both thought that she was going to say Audrey. But no, it's Tina. She says, well, it made me wonder if Tina is Audrey. And our hunch that she was going to say Audrey is not wrong, that Audrey is her mom, that is her daughter, and that from that theory perspective, that whole conversation over the past couple of weeks of t- uh, between Audrey and Charlie, in which she's fixating on Tina and hating Tina, and Tina being the last one to see Billy alive. But that information is conflicted by this scene. We'll talk about that in a second. But my theory was is that when Audrey is talking about Tina, is she talking about herself? When Charlie calls Tina on the phone, is he calling Audrey? All of these thoughts that came to mind, um, and one thing, because I said I would finish out this thought, like, we were told in the last couple of weeks that Tina was the last one to see Billy alive, but it turns out that this girl, who is Tina's daughter, was technically 
the last one to see him alive. Or, well, I guess she and her mom saw Billy at the same time. So, I Mm -hmm. mean, I guess that's no big mystery. So what were you going to say? I was just going to echo everything that you're saying. Um, I am struck by the fact also that... There was the reference to the nut house that you mentioned. This in an episode when Shad had earlier compared his sad uh, lot in life in that strange prison full of a repeating drunk and a strange woman with no eyes. He had called it a nut house. And I wonder if that correlation, what that implies. I've talked about this a lot. One of my favorite moments in the original run of Twin Peaks was towards the end of season two when there's that episode where suddenly everyone's hand starts shaking. This felt like, you know, are these walls between different humans inside of Twin Peaks starting to break down these words that are beginning to repeat? Two nut houses, two mentions of the firemen in the same episode. Don't know what to make of that. I definitely think that it's now on the table that a lot of this stuff is maybe happening in Audrey's head. You know, as we'd kind of said, like, I almost kind of wanted to say initially, my new theory is everything in the roadhouse has been fantasy, but of course, James did show up there with Freddy back in part two. So, as you said, Jeff, total foundation of reality beginning to break underneath us here in part 14. I kind of couldn't be happier. We've talked about it a lot. Have your thoughts changed at all about the episode? Do you still feel like you're not quite sure where to stand on with part 14? Oh, I like it. I think that as we now enter the final act of this season, this episode has an interesting effect on us for people who have just enjoyed the show as it is, but also sort of like actively walk through it, try to wrap our mind around it and such. It definitely puts us all entering the final act to basically maybe just like put all of our theories down and just sit back and just let them finish this story. Because like in a show in which we're now dealing with at this late stage, the possibility that nothing is what it seems speculating about like theories and such it almost seems kind of comical. Uh, so it has an interesting effect on us, uh, on, on me. I'm in, I, and I love this episode, but it's, I feel like what I'm saying is I feel the destabilization that a lot of the characters in this show are now feeling and it's and it's a weird thing to to feel but uh yeah i mean i'm baffled i'm bewildered and i'm but i'm all in for the rest of this journey before we say goodbye can we do one bit of business here which is i just want to give a shout out to everyone who has been sending us their theories crazy and otherwise and we we got a 13 page manifesto theory like darren that was this beautiful thing to behold We've been going through them. We've been reading them. I think we owe the listeners like a special fan mail uh, episode soon. If not, we'll definitely have to do a post soon in which we respond to a lot of these theories. But I just wanted to say thank you because they're just, I've been spending some of my vacation reading them and they're just great. And I really appreciate everyone who has taken the time to do that. It's really cool. And and now you can finish up your vacation reading a lot of ancient Sanskrit texts. Um, I'm sure your family will be so happy. Everybody out there, like Jeff said, we love hearing from you. Tweet at us if you have any thoughts about this episode. Maybe you have some thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. See what you think. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. Email us, twinpeaks at EW.com. And hey, while you're at it, if you like listening to us talk as much as we like hearing ourselves talk, go to Apple Podcasts. 
give us a rate and review. Let us know what you think. Love to hear what you think about the show. It's been so fun doing this. And uh, four episodes left. Three Sundays left. Can't imagine it's going to get any crazier than the Monica Bellucci dream, but we'll see where things go. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with more A Twin Peaks Podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. <laughs>